You're listening to the We Are Libertarians podcast network. Find all of our shows at wearelibertarians.com. Welcome to the Chris Spangle Show. Thank you so much for joining me. We've got a great show for you today. We're going to be talking uh, mostly about Ukraine and kind of where we're at with some of that. Uh, But I've got a guest, Andrew Donaldson, who is the host of Heard Tell, uh, Young Voices contributor, and the managing editor of Ordinary Times, ordinary-times.com, which is a popular blogging site what would you is a blogging is it opinion how would you describe ordinary times yeah it's culture and politics and everything in between and uh if you want to write about it we want to hear you out on it and then it's got a great uh discussion community it's an old site it's been around a long time been around about 15 years actually goes back further than that to the old list server message board days (laughs) if you go back far enough a lot of names folks might recognize you know the Eric Keynes of the world, those kind of folks. But it, it's been around a long time. We're just stewards of it. We try to hold it up. Uh, you're going to find a lot of stuff you disagree with. You might find some stuff you agree with, but you always find something that'll provoke your thinking a little bit. And that's the kind of stuff I like to spend time on. I, I like to be challenged in my thinking, and I like to get in the arena of ideas and, and hash stuff out. So it's been a good home for me for a couple of years. Been really blessed to work with those folks. Well, that's what we love here at the We Are Libertarians uh, you know, podcast network and the Chris Spangle Show. I like to be challenged. I listen to a yeah. lot of stuff that I don't like. Uh, to, to push myself, you know, because there's so much propaganda, one-sided propaganda out there. Uh, you also have a podcast, Heard Tell, and I, mm. I inadvertently watched an episode as I was preparing with Addison. You had the, the handsome Addison Hosner on, like I did this past Saturday, uh, and it was a, a fun show. And tell us, you know, what do you do at Heard Tell? And, you know, maybe start with a little bit of your background. You know, where where'd you come from? How'd you get to a point where you're hosting a political podcast and a Young Voices contributor? Yeah, Young Voices by the skin of my teeth. I'm, we jokingly call it, and it's accurate, I'm the oldest of the Young Voices uh, <laughs> by, by a little, by quite a bit, actually. But I, no, I love working with those guys. It's great. And you know this as a host, what folks don't, like, I can just go to them, everybody they ever put me with to work with. It's just top quality people. Yeah. Uh, cannot say enough good things about Young Voices. But yeah, I, uh, I, this is all accidental. I didn't mean to do any of this stuff. I never had a social media account until four years ago. <laughs> Um, I was actually active duty military for about 12 years, um, had some health problems related to that, got, um, couldn't do that anymore, couldn't go anymore. Uh, so I tried to put together a civilian career, more health problems popped up, couldn't do that anymore. So while I was rehabbing that, uh, my world got kind of really, really small. I spent about five months in the hospital up in Duke in 2016 from August through November, uh, including some really tough times, multiple major surgeries, had open heart surgeries, had four different gastric surgeries. Uh, spent some time on a ventilator, woke up from the ventilator and Donald Trump's president and the Cubs won the World Series. I'm like, what in the world just happened? <laughs> um, You're literally the guy that people made memes about. <laughs> what? Just, just about. Now, I got about three weeks in there in October that I have no memory of anything because I was wow. on the ventilator. But anyway, rehabbing all that and, and trying to come back from, from those health issues. And it, it was made apparent to me like those days, I was always a grinder, man. I liked working and they're like, no, that 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 guy's gone. That 14, 15 hour a day, go, 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 being a manager, 
climbing the ladder. He's like, that's, that's over. You're going to find something else to do with your time. Hmm. So to, when you're rehabbing and you're sick and you're home all the time and, and you lose your job, my, my company contracted while I was on the way to the hospital to have surgery. They called me and like, oh yeah, we eliminated 360 positions and you're one of them. Oh, so I actually geez. got fired. Nice. I got fired on the way to the hospital because my company got bought out by another company. Can you, um, can, can you direct me to the Cobra guy? <laughs> oh, don't even start me on Cobra. Like everybody tells me like, you want to talk healthcare? I got it, man. I'm a VA patient. I've been fired. I've been on Cobra. I can talk healthcare with you. Anyway, long story short, you, when you're, when you lose your job and you're home all the time and that your world gets too small. So I started writing a little bit and I got a Twitter account, which sounds insane. My, my therapist for my mental health at the VA was like, you need to expand your world. And then she's like, that's not what I meant. <laughs> <laughs> but it's been great for me. It opened it opened some doors for me. And then into that, I started doing a little bit of writing, which I hadn't done since high school, really. Um, and a friend of mine who's now the senior editor at Ordinary Times, M. Carpenter, she, she's like, I wrote a couple things politically. And she's like, you need to just write your story. And I wrote it. And um, some real good friends of ours, uh, folks, you your audience would probably know, you know, Jerry Dunleavy was one of them. Uh, Kimberly Ross, uh, Andrea Ruth at the time, Andrea Caruso now. Uh, Washington Examiner, they got a hold of that thing when I had like 21 Twitter followers and literally six people had read that piece because I was watching it on Medium. I had six readers and it <laughs> went to a couple thousand in like an hour. It kind of went wildfire. Um, and that got me into Ordinary Times. Will Truman offered me he the infamous words of, do you want to write something sometime? And within about six, seven months, I was running the whole thing because one, nobody else wanted to do it. That's typical and, of like volunteer yeah. publications. Yeah. I, the old military term is you screw yourself into a job. Yeah. Um, but it's been so good. I'm so blessed, man. And I got to do that. And that led, you know, when you're writing, all of a sudden, you know, radio folks want to talk to you. I got hooked up with a, a guy named Joe Catanacci, who's actually, he's moved on from Wilmington. He's down in Myrtle Beach now, a bigger market, but he was the morning radio guy in Wilmington. He's like, hey, you should come on and talk about your writing. And I got to start doing radio. And that led to guest hosting radio. And it was just the most natural thing in the world to do a podcast from there. And then uh, the radio station started changing formats. They're like, you know, we'll give you an hour time slot if you want it. So I retooled her tell from a more traditional, you know, once a week long form podcast. Now we do a daily show, one hour segmented like radio, but it's on podcast. It's on YouTube. It's on you face, you know, that that fancy term we use multi-platform which sounds really yeah. really fun but really it's just putting it out on different spots but it's a daily multi-platform morning show and i have lost my ever-loving mind thinking i should do that but it's been very very rewarding and i love it and I'm it's hard to do a it. daily show people don't realize how tough yeah. it is just to create a piece of content on a daily basis like in let's say you want to do an email newsletter or write a blog post today or do a podcast today which is even more aggressive than those two things because not yeah. only do you have to do the reading and research and writing for it, you also then have to do the performing of it. Yeah. Um, but yeah, it's hard to do a daily show. That's you know you, they they said hey you can't work fifteen hour days, but wh oh. what are you thinking? <laughs> These are oh they're nonstop, and I do a morning show, which means you're usually up you usually up one or two times during the night to make sure everything rendered right and uploaded right and got into the yeah. got into OPS right and all that kind of stuff cuz it's all live stream so I'm up a couple times during the morning I'm I'm never up later than at 5 a.m. every day but I like the, I mean it's good to stay you know that's not the physical exertion of working you know in a warehouse or in trucking or in the military like I was for 14 15 hours a day it's all mental but I I need that I need that kind of stimulate but you know it's like you said it's a lot of work but there's also it's like all hard work there's a rhythm to it and you learn to get you know my my podcast and her tells formatted like a radio show and you know this you know I I've got my segments so all day long I'm already thinking about 
hey, I need my ending segment. I try to do a good news kind of thing to end the show on. I need my opening segment, which is kind of a monologue thing. I need my two floating segments, and I got my two segments that are an interview because one of the biggest things we did coming from the radio world, you know this, uh, and because I do media hits, I hate doing a four-minute media hit. I mean, I do them. There's no point to it. There's no point to it. So the first thing when we formatted it, I was talking to my radio producer. I was like, all our interviews are going to be two segments minimum. Like we're going to go 20, 25 minutes with our guests. And, but that's really opened up. Like people want, I just, right before I came on with you, a pretty well-known person said, me, Hey, I wrote this piece. I want to come on your show. It starts becoming self-sustaining. Yeah, absolutely. But one of the reasons he's like, Hey, I really want to talk about this for more than eight or nine minutes that I'm going to do elsewhere. And that's the beauty of these platforms is you can, you know, you do your show a little differently than I do it. Mm-hmm. So we can have the same guest on, but you can have different takes and different views and they can dig into a different way. It's an amazing time to be alive and we're really blessed to get to do what we do. And I think, I think media is for the better of it. And it's far better in my opinion. You know, we can sit and complain about it. Uh, I went out and did something about it. I'm, I'm not going to just gripe about the media. That's I'm going to make the media I want to do. I suspect and you right and I are going to have a lot in, in agreement. I mean, I, yeah. you, you were in the military. You've lived a life like working with government i was you know uh in politics and was a reporter and have managed campaigns and like have done that for 20 years now you know and and then the media side for the last 10 when you've got some experience to you you see things a little bit different than people who got involved in politics five years ago and have spent all their time on twitter uh you know and so when i look at the media i go the media's never had more power less power right like yeah. Nobody like my I have a bigger Patreon than CNN Plus. I guarantee it. Problem. <laughs> like yeah, there's I, just I was just looking at the numbers this morning on it. It's, it's bad. Um but yeah, I mean that we've never had a better opportunity to start our own thing, to start our own institution. It's never been cheaper. That's why I started podcasting and platforms to teach people to do this yeah. stuff cuz you don't need the media. All you need to do is influence the people in your circles to yeah. to push them in a certain direction because they may be watching CNN, but the amount of people that are actually watching CNN compared to watching CNN 15, 10, 20 years ago, so mm-hmm. much less than it used to be. Yeah, and people people misread what the media... And we do it, too, because we're always talking about the media because it's what we do. It's we, it's we a have, great phone... You know, when you work in radio, people, you got the phone ringer. The thing that's going to make phone the phone... The, 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 that's going to get people calling in. And when I worked in local radio, I don't have show prep. Uh, immigration, what do you think? And then the, line, yeah. the phone lines yeah. light up. You throw a grenade. I, I right. do it with my commenting section on the website every now and then. If things are dull, you just throw a grenade and watch what happens. Right. Um, but people don't realize, people misunderstand that the media is always, you know, people don't realize they'll talk about, well, Joe Rogan has 11 million or whatever followers he's got now. And they'll talk about the CNN numbers we were just looking at this morning where they thought they were going to get 15 million on their streams. They're like, that's, that's insane. Nobody was going to get that. That's crazy. But then people don't also realize that there's fragmentation, you know, NPR, National Public Radio, they get 25 million listeners. Yeah. And you never hear about it and you never talk about it because it's, no offense, it's boring. It's good kind of boring. There's a lot of information here. There's 25 million people listen to that every day. Yeah. That's that's more than Rush had. Yeah. And Rush is the gold standard. You know, you just, a lot of it's perception because we get so wrapped up in it. And then we we just did a thing with Young Voices where we're working with young podcasters. We met up with the uh, mostly libertarians up in the Raleigh area. And filled the room out, people, you know, 70 some people in the event room talking to him about starting podcasts. And it's the first thing we told him is like, you have an audience that nobody but you is going to reach. That's the part of this they don't tell you is CNN only reaches a certain audience. And there's those big names like that, even a, and a show like yours and the We Are Libertarians Network. I've been on a couple of the other programs on your network. E- each inside that network, even though you have kind of an overarching worldview, 
you all look at it differently and you all have your own little niches. It's like, all you have to do is find your niche of information that you do better than anybody else. And that's the beauty of this technology is, yeah, it's fragmented, but inside those cracks, you can really find a space and you can find some community and you can actually, and this is the most important part for me, you can actually do some good because you get feedback from people like, man, I learned about that. Or you see people that otherwise wouldn't talk to each other, talking to each other, or you can bring up an issue that no, I mean, it's so fulfilling when you get a piece of mail or a DM and somebody goes, I had no idea that even existed. Yeah. And, and it's an important issue, whatever the issue may be that man, that that's meaningful. And it's more meaningful than just, you know, and all due respect to them. Some of them are good people, but do you really want to listen to another six headed panel talking about the same thing from the same people again? Or do you want to get that where you go like, I made a difference in that person's life today. It may be a small difference, but they can go and do something with it. And goodness, start spreading. I'd rather do some good because there's a lot of bad out there. I want to do good stuff, man. Thousands of people a, a week listen to Li- We Are Libertarians podcasts, this podcast. And I guarantee it has more of an impact in people's lives than CNN, which will transition to Ukraine now. Uh, yeah. y- y- you you watch CNN, you don't really get a lot of information. You know, if you watch, you know, France 24-7, you get a little bit more information, yeah. but TV news, by and large, just in America especially, just doesn't give you the same level of information, and they've overpaid for all these different hosts to come on and sit and talk about, you know, well, we've got to get a name like David Petraeus. Now, the military guys, interestingly, when they come on CNN or Fox News, you get more relevant information mm-hmm. about the war out of those guys because they're not playing the political game, but I don't know why they put like former campaign managers on all these panels because they say nothing. They add no. nothing to the conversation. It's no. just that they have a name, so they think that they're going to get viewers. Um, why do you think... I, I mean, I guess when I'm watching these guys and I see you you, you military fellas talk about some of this this stuff, I would think often like, oh, they're not they're not supposed to talk about anything military. Um, but as a guy who's been in the military, when you look at Ukraine, how do you approach it when you're covering it, when you're talking about it? How do you think about it? Um, because my military friends have such a different frame than the chattering class. You know, let's, let's get the elephant out of the room. We're doing this right after the Afghanistan stuff. And it's kind of clouded how the Western media has looked at all this and it's clouded. I'm sure it was part of Russia's calculation when Putin was looking at it, they looked at what happened in Afghanistan. So, you know, these things don't happen in a vacuum. Let's, let's understand the sequence of events. So that the Afghanistan aftertaste and the bad aftertaste of how that that's, that's clouding how Western media, especially American media and British media are looking at things. And it kind of took about three or four days of the Ukraine crisis to kind of cut through that fog because everybody was still in the, you know, all war is bad and stuff. And and I hate war as somebody who's been in war can only hate war. I don't like war. But when you're in an invasion situation, and you have a clear cut good guy and bad guy like you got in Ukraine where you have war crimes, where they're leveling cities, where they're murdering people, that that's a righteous fight. And I know a lot of people, you know, some people are more pacifist than I am on that. And they don't really believe in righteous warfare. That's fine. I respect your opinion, but that's where I'm at on it. I think that kind of cut through that, but it took everybody a minute to kind of get there. So the, the military folks talking about it, we we've kind of had a 20 year period where we've had our own mixed emotions about what went on in the war on terror and Iraq and Afghanistan. And it's hard to talk about some of those things and it's hard how some of those things were covered. And we, we, we haven't as a country reckoned with all that yet. 
So we kind of brought some baggage to the Ukraine thing to start with. Yeah, I, I totally agree in that that is shading because I realized early on, like, I don't feel like I have an overarching sense of what's happening with this. It's yeah. very disconnected. And that's when I realized I was used to a neat little prepackaged mm-hmm. bow that the Pentagon was handing to American press. Yep. You know, here's what's happening around the countries of Iraq and Afghanistan. Like, I, I, I was like, oh, I'm not, I'm so used to American propaganda about war that when we're not directly involved, I don't, I don't understand what's going on because, and I think the press kind of has that lack of ability to cover it because they're, let's face it, the mainstream press, their idea of fact checking is going and talking to the government and getting fact verified. So talk about some of those ver some of those emotions that you're talking about like yeah. when we look back at Iraq and Afghanistan and some of the complicated baggage that we're bringing to it uh h- detail some of that for us give us yeah. some perspective on that and then you know how that's shading Ukraine you know i was actually live on the air doing live radio the monday after the afghanistan when when they had to pull back to the airport on that saturday and they're in Kabul, and it, it really was looking shaky. Like, was that, you know, were, was the Taliban going to come back, or were they going to hold back and let us get out of there? And that I was live on the air that morning, and you can go back and listen. I was TK Turbo, my radio producer. I was joking with him the other day. There's parts of that episode, you, you can hear me laughing coming out of the break, which sounds backwards. But what was happening is when you're sitting in a when you're sitting in the studio, you got the Kegel lights for the for the video, and the screens with all the CNN and all the news networks are right in front of you. Like, you can't not watch it while you're on the air, right? Because you're in a radio studio. I was a met. He, he had to spoon feed me through the whole morning because I had, um, let me kind of say this carefully, but uh, guys that I served with, especially the, the units out of Ramstein, uh, Germany, they were on the ground. They're WhatsApping me live before it happened. So like the, the video of the guys falling off the aircraft, I knew about that about 30 minutes before it hit because I got a WhatsApp about it. And I'm live on the air trying to process all this with my buddies on the airfield in Cabal. And Cabal is the nightmare airfield scenario because it's a single runway in an urban environment. That's as, that's as nightmarish as it gets for trying to get out because you have one plane go down, that airfield's closed. Hmm. You have one guy with us. We had the uh, one of the French A300s, which is their version of a kind of a, it's, an up, it's bigger than a 130. It's not quite a C-17-sized aircraft, but big aircraft, right? they were shooting flares coming off the airfield. And what you have to understand is that's completely an automated defensive system. The, the pilot can't do that. Hmm. They had to be painted for that to happen. So it was, it was, it should have been, could have been, ought to have been a whole lot worse than it was. Thank God it wasn't. I know we lost the 13 at the Abbey gate, which was tragic and senseless, but that should have been a lot worse. So those kind of emotions, when we went through that were real, they were raw. I, I was telling the radio story because of this, there, there's parts where you're coming off break and I'm laughing, which is really unfortunate professional but what was happening was my producer was just having to walk me through the breaks hmm. he was he was trying to make me laugh he was trying to get me to relax because i was i was a mess is, is it's the, hard is the trauma what is it just reliving personal experiences is, is it such that, a sad close to an end where you sacrificed a lot and it's let's break so it up poorly planned it kinda, yeah let's break it up so it's bite-sized pieces for people because this is stuff i spend you know I've spent years talking to my VA providers about trying right. to work through myself. Big picture existential. Yeah, we have those questions of was it worth it? And you have those, you know, all the stuff that all the all the commentators you've talked about, I've talked about on my show. Like, was it worth it? Did we handle it? Was it worth the price we paid? We have, you know, 4,000 some odd dead in Iraq. Was that worth it? We have 20 years in Afghanistan. Was it worth it? 
you have all those big existential historical questions. So that's one level of it. And then you have the personal level of it, of your own experiences you have to deal with. I just had, um, the, it, today's the 13th, the 10th anniversary of, of a friend of mine getting killed in Iraq. It's one of the toughest days of the year for me. Yeah. Um, it just happened on the 10th. So two days ago, we went through this every year. And I joke, I put it on, I've, I've gotten to where I talk about it on Twitter a little bit every year just to honor him. And, and I, I say it's like every year it sneaks up on me and every year I dread it for 364 days at the same time. That sounds contradictory, but that's exactly what it's like. Mm. It's immediately right here all the time, but it feels like somebody else's life at the same time. And just every so often when you're not expecting it, those it the streams cross. And when the streams cross, you know, the streams cross, some serious stuff goes down. And so you have those two things running in parallel all the time. So when you see, you know, conflict on or you see somebody doing a review of Afghanistan or Iraq, those two parallels are always running in your mind. And they're going and you just know every so often they're going to cross and they're going to connect. And then you have to deal with it. And that's something that everybody has to deal with in their own way. And then on top of it, because of what I do, I voluntarily do this media stuff and I write about it. I have to also take that and try to present it publicly in some kind of a productive way and not just be a mess or not just be a ranting you know, person that's got his own issues of it. So the way I try to deal with it, and this is just me, um, I try to be pretty open about it as much as I can with a few exceptions because there's people involved. I try to just be open about it. Like, look, I struggle with this. I don't know the answers either. I can't answer the was it worth it. There's a lot of it I think was worth it. There's some stuff that I know because, you know, the contractor fraud, waste and abuse that is a big angle of it. We don't talk about enough. Um, we can talk about the evil of the Taliban. Nobody disputes that. But how much of that is our responsibility? How much of it isn't? Those really big questions. I don't have good answers for. Them. And the more I work on it and the more I think about it, the less I have a good answer for it. So the only way I can deal with it as a commentator and as a man and as somebody who loves his country and is proud of his service and would do it again if I was 18 years old, I would definitely enlist again. All I can do is be honest about it and try to take it as it comes, not try to sugarcoat it. We did a lot of bad. We did a lot of good, too. That's the only way I know to do it is to have more and more humility the further down the road I go with it so that when we do the historical record of it, we have the historical record of it as close to the truth as possible, not just wave the flag at it, not just say, well, we're Americans, good, bad, or indifferent, but say we did some good, we did some bad. Here's the whole picture of us. Judge us on the whole of it. Yeah, I feel like for 30 years or more, I mean, really the last 20, we've had, uh, it's, you know, it started around that era. Uh, it, maybe it carries over from Vietnam, but I just was 18 on 9-11, you know, but the sense that you couldn't say anything bad about the war or else you were unpatriotic, you couldn't say anything bad about the president, the president wouldn't answer or acknowledge even that anything, that he had done anything wrong, that they had made miscalculations, just drove most normal people nuts. <laughs> yeah. It drove the press nuts, it drove the left nuts, it just, you know, Bush couldn't admit, and that that inability to admit that he had prosecuted the war in even one minor way was really what drove his numbers down you know as much as anything else just that lack of humility um and that's kind of carried on i mean you can't admit yeah. you can't admit that they're the government did wrong things during covid that they made miscalculations you can't admit that you know if you're not for ukraine then and you admit that russia is is uh not the full aggressor and that we didn't make mistakes with nato you're you're the problem but 
I think that inability to be self-reflective has been hugely damaging to our society. And, you know, we don't really create a, a way to save face in America like they do in Asian cultures. Um, yeah. But when I look back and, and really kind of studied the war on terror, I mean, you had a fundamentally different war. You had disparate groups in the hills and, you know, in pockets and insurgent warfare and small squads of American soldiers. It wasn't like Ukraine where you've got tanks on the streets and heavy armor uh, and two nation states. One is clearly the aggressor invading territories for the last eight years of the other. Um, But yet we still sort of talk about Ukraine like we talk about the war on terror where we killed 800,000 to 900,000 Iraqis. It was a huge mistake. We shouldn't have done it. When you hear kind of the traditional libertarian talk about, you know, like just the, the, I'm not going to say pacifist, right? Like I'm, I'm pretty close to it. I think we should have a strong military to mess you up if you come into my territory, but I don't think we should be sending weapons to other countries to involve ourselves and intervene and, and, different things um but a lot of my ilk kind of talk about ukraine like like we talk about the war on terror we just never should have done it it was a huge mistake and here's all the ways that we committed war crimes and genocide how does that fall on your ears how does that jive with your experience and and what you think yeah and i i respect our our friends who get very very libertarian and are and especially if they're consistent on it i can completely respect them for being consistent on it like i tell people all the time because we have everybody on our show i have conservatives i have libertarians a lot of libertarians i have you know progressives i just had one of the most progressive office holders in the country on a couple days ago i'll have anybody on i want you to be consistent and i want to discuss your beliefs just be consistent so i respect the, the folks that are, you know, pacifists is probably too harsh of a term, but those like, unless you get in my own yard, I'm going to leave you alone. Non-interventionist. Yeah, the non-interventionist. I have respect for it. I can't go there, though, personally, because um, I can't wish away the bad. And if I know there's bad going on, then what, and this this is a big gray area, and we could spend six years discussing this, you know, what, if you understand that there's bad going on, when does your personal responsibility kick in to do something about the bad? Now, when you start talking to nation state, let's go back to something you just said that I think is really important. You mentioned Vietnam. A lot of this problem started after Vietnam because something very important happened. The U.S. military completely stripped itself down, rebuilt itself, did some soul searching, and changed everything about itself and became the best military we didn't have the best military in the world in at the end of the 70s that that happened because they sold search they stripped it down they said we need to learn all the mistakes we made in vietnam we need to learn the mistakes of the draft we need to learn the mistakes of command and control from washington instead of at the unit level and they remade the military the problem was and this this is key to understanding what happened in the war on terror all that stuff you just talked about the government that that military answers to did not do the same thing they never had any soul searching on it. They never had any moment of re- revision and taking themselves and rebuilding it and making it better. So you had a world-class military with a compassless government. Yeah. Does that make sense? No, I mean... That, the, the, that's the, the genesis you know, of where a lot of this went wrong because they're like, we got the best military in the world. We can do whatever we want. But they never learned the lessons of Vietnam as a government of how to wield that military effectively and when to use it, when to not use it. You know, there's a lot of arrogance involved in that. And a lot of it came from that. They, the military changed, but the government it served never changed after Vietnam. And they made the same mistakes again in a lot of ways. 
Yeah, I mean, the, the United States government wanted to protect the liberal world order of, you know, the, the idea, Bush always promoted this book, The Case for Democracy by Natan Sharansky. I'm in the process of reading it now because I remember him talking about it, and it was the case from a Soviet dissident that had been in gulags and had left to, for yeah. uh, Israel, and he talked about the importance of, you know, America and the West standing up against you know, dictators and having kind of this strong moral ethic and, you know, Reagan tossing before he sat down with Soviet leaders, tossing across the war, prisoners of war and saying, we're not dealing with you until you do this. Unfortunately, that capital was kind of spent in the war on terror and yeah. it was squandered. And so the ability for America to be seen as some sort of mo great moral force for liberal democratic capitalism was spoiled in our own country as well, too. Um, and so the, the reality of, well, we just need to use our military to impose democracy and capitalism on these countries. Once they get a little bit of a taste, they're never going to go back. Well, we did that with the Middle Eastern countries and we tried it, you know, you know, uh, uh, diplomatically with China and Russia and I don't think it worked. <laughs> and I think we're looking at a unipolar world now where you start to see some of these baddies stand up. And, you know, your article that caught my eye that led to this was about Putin's speech. Yeah. Uh, and I, th I think we're heading into a time where we have to be really clear about our values because these countries don't share our values. Look at what's happening in Shanghai. Look at how yeah. Russia ha has prison camps for gays right like yeah you know ending if you want to talk about cancel culture and ending free speech with zuckerberg look at look at how russia has handled things the last four months with their internet um this guy is not a a great savior of western civilization like some no. libertarians are talking about and i think you made a really important point in your piece when you go back and you're looking for justifications listen to his words he he when these guys speak, listen to them. Yeah. Yeah. Bad people will tell you what they're going to do if you listen. Like, without exception, they always, like, Putin was not subtle about what he was doing in Ukraine. He talked about it for 25 years. And then he talked to about, it. It, it's, it's funny, we talk about the intelligence failures of the war on terror. Our intelligence got this one right. Why did they get it right? Well, our system has been built for 60 years to do intelligence on Russia. So it's in their yeah. wheelhouse. It's what they know to do. We we weren't good at when we went in the Middle East. We didn't understand culturally how to build those networks, those sorts of things. You know, we know how to handle Russia. What we didn't plan on was what Putin was going to do, that he was actually going to be mad enough to actually prosecute this. But he told you plainly, he said, Ukraine's not a real country. They don't have a culture. They've always been Russian. None of that's true, by the way. They've they've never been Russian. They've always been Russian. They've never been Ukrainian. He's openly telling, but what's he actually saying? He said it to Bush in 08? Yeah, yeah. He, said it, he said it when they went into uh, Ukraine to get Crimea the first time. I remember I was in Germany when he went into Georgia. We actually had people in our neighborhood that were Georgians that we, you know, we had to sit in the beer garden at our local restaurant, look them in the eye and kind of feel ashamed we weren't doing anything to help them then. He, he's done this for a long time. There, there. The book on Vladimir Putin is established. We just kind of kitted ourselves, I guess. I don't know if, you know, we're, we're very much in an isolationist phase right now after Afghanistan. We don't want to really deal with stuff like this. Maybe that's part of it. We j and the media coverage of Putin has just been horrific. And then you had, um, all due respect to our European allies, but Germany and France has been very enabling 
to Putin over the years. We can talk about that some other time. The, the PM who was before um, Merkel is on the board Schroeder. of Schroeder is on the board yep. of a major Russian ga- state-owned gas company. Like, yeah, and if you go back far enough, because I was there. Remember when when we were going to go into Iraq, Schroeder was the one raising all kinds of holy hell that we shouldn't be in Afghanistan, we shouldn't be in Iraq on behalf. And then come to find out, he's been in the pocket of of Vladimir Putin and the oligarchs for you know years and years and years. He's on the board of Gazprom now. If that's not obvious to everybody, how that works, he was the he was the prime he was the chancellor of Germany, and he was he was hating on America. Like it was to the point where we had warnings about, hey, you need to be careful when you go out on the streets because he's stoking so much anti-American hatred. Back in 0203, I was in Frankfurt. I'm, he was the chancellor. I remember when that happened. And now in retrospect, we see why. Well, there was money involved and there was yeah. power involved and there was enabling. And, and, you know, but that your point on him goes to the thing of we haven't done a good job of paying attention. If you're going to involve yourself in geopolitics, this is a point I think our libertarians have friends have a really good point on with non-intervention that we need to listen to, even if you are like me and a little bit more interventionalist. If you're going to get involved, you better know what you're talking about. And we wanted to pretend that Germany was a great ally of ours and where we were simpatico. Well, we haven't been simpatico with them for 20 years because they had Schroeder. Merkel kind of had, she changed over the 16 years she was in power from one, from being very pro-Putin to being more anti-Putin. He picked Merkel as a successor for a reason. They don't have nuclear power for a reason. Yeah, she, <laughs> she and she's really interesting because she grew up in the Eastern Bloc, very, very interesting person. She changed over those 16 years and Putin attacked her directly a couple times. He brought dogs to a meeting. She has a long long uh history she was attacked by a dog as a child so she has a fear of dogs he brought his dogs to an official meeting one time like crap like this so she got more hardline as she went but by then the damage is done because they've already turned they've already gutted their energy processes and they're dependent on the russian gas energy and it's bad and remember they they cranked down their energy before this invasion so there was already going to be a crisis because they thought that would protect them from sanctions it didn't if, if they don't figure something out this summer, this winter in Europe is going to be ugly, ugly stuff. There's going to be famine in parts of the world because of the disruption to the food supply. Putin's going to kill a lot of people here, not just with the bombs. Uh, and these geopolitical things, we don't do a good job of keeping up with them. And then we try to jump in the deep end of the pool and we don't understand what's really going on. And if it, we foreign policy to put a cap on all this before it gets too far afield, foreign policy has to be coherent and it has to be consistent. Show me anything in the last 40 years of American history, foreign policy-wise, where we were coherent and consistent on anything. Yeah. We change every couple of years. We change every president. We we don't have a real good sense as Americans of what we are. And I'm a foreign policy guy, and I know a lot of people don't want to talk about that, and libertarians don't. They got a point. If you're not going to be consistent know what you're talking about, you're better off not getting involved. But if you're going to get involved, you better know what you're talking about. And we seem to want to go down this middle path where we don't know we don't want to get involved, but then we get involved anyway. But we don't know what we're talking about. But we're going to act like we do, which is what the president's policies have been doing. You end up looking silly. Yeah, I mean, it does real harm worldwide, not just to us, to everybody. Yeah. Look at Trump withholding, trying to withhold congressionally approved funds and weapons for Ukraine, gets impeached for it, wants to withdraw from NATO. Uh, seems to have uh, a greater dislike for you know traditional allies, uh, and then you know, but it's not just here. I mean, look at Le Pen in France. If she yeah. if she wins, that's the funny thing about the Nazis in Ukraine. There are literal Nazis in Ukraine. There's no disputing it. But Putin funds the eighty the ADM <laughs> in Germany. He's yeah. he's helped fund the Le Pen's party. Like Nazis for ye, but not for me. Right. You know, know that's that's um, sort of the, the. But I think your point is totally right. And that America, and then you have Biden come in, and he's totally committed to NATO, 
and we're going to help NATO, no questions asked. Uh, so send your planes. We promise that we'll send you replacements. Like the the entire American response to this has been: we're going to get involved, but we're not going to get involved. We're going to do this, but we're not going to do this. And I mean, I hate to say it, but America is coming across like the UN. Either bow out, say we're not doing anything, we're not getting involved. This is yeah. Europe's problem, or. Like, but the the will we won't we of the Biden administration over the last four or five months, it's not helpful in any way. You you can clearly see what Biden thinks, but then they walk it back. Like he hates Putin, he yeah. wants to get involved, but then you know he, he it's, he it's walks all it optics back. with the Biden. Look, everything he does is there. Look, there, there's two ways that you have to look at Biden because we got fifty years of book on him. Okay, there's right. nothing. Same thing I said with Trump when Trump ran. I was like, you can't tell me you don't know who he is. We got seventy years of book on the guy. We got fifty years of public service on Joe Biden. Has two modes. He has all shucks, Uncle Joe, and he has f you and bow up when he doesn't get his way. <laughs> and he and sometimes you get them both in the same press conference. Sometimes you get them both in the same press answer, which is really interesting. Some of those virus, well, just watch. That's the only two modes he has. Yeah. Neither one of those lend themselves to foreign policy because again, what do we just say? You got to be consistent and you got to be coherent. Neither one of those goes to that. So you get really silly stuff happening policy-wise because this administration over and over and over again, they go for the optics over the policy every single time. That's why you keep everything he does, you always watch is he says something, then they walk it back, then they admit he kind of meant it, and then about two days later, you get whatever the actual policy was. And he's trying to do that with this with a shooting war, which you can't do because you got to have definitive, firm answers. And that's why you have, you know, it's a completely fair criticism that NATO didn't really know what it was four months ago. I think NATO today has got a pretty good handle on what they're going to be for the next two or three years. They've got to retool to be against Russia. So, so NATO is reconstituting themselves. It would be nice if they had American leadership to do that, but they've just kind of cut us out a little bit. Poland is leading the way because they share the border, but Poland is leading. Europe is turning to Poland for leadership. Uh, you saw Boris Johnson, even though he's got terrible scandal at home, he just got he just got convicted of a crime for crying out loud. But you have him walking the streets of Kiev with Zelensky. You know, you, you yeah. want to talk about optics and leadership. And we have optics that play really good in the Brady briefing room where everything that happens in there doesn't really matter. And the actual policy in the real world makes us look silly. The problem is with, for, you know, domestically silly costs you a couple percentage points on your approval rating. If you look silly in foreign policy, people get killed. And people get hurt and the world order gets shook up if you look silly. Silly is bad when it comes to foreign policy. And we look a whole lot of silly right now, unfortunately. I hate to say it, but it's just true. Well, what's what's the alternative then? Like, Uh, you sound like a warmonger. Are you trying to get us in a war? Yeah, I'm a warmonger. Yeah, definitely. (laughs) Got to keep that VA check coming, right? (laughs) No, it's... it's, um, all that great you know, I care. Wear, I, I, look, <laughs> depending on the war, I wear that hat. There's some wars that need fought. I don't, you know, we're not going to get involved on the ground in Ukraine. So what are we going to do? Um, we're probably doing what we ought to do. They don't need, I'm going to get some grief for this, but I don't care. It's just true. They don't need planes and tanks and stuff. That's not what Ukraine needs because they're going to end up, if you give them that stuff, they have the same problem the Russians is because you got to have logistics to keep that stuff in the field and they don't have that. They're winning doing small unit tactics, guerrilla warfare style. That's how they're winning this war. Give them those weapons. Give them the small unit weapons. Give them the anti-tank weapons. Give them some anti-ship weapons to get their coastline back. That's what you give them. They don't need tanks and planes and bombs. That's not what they need. They couldn't put it in the field if they wanted to, and it'd be a waste of the limited resources they have. 
there's no good options here. The least bad of the bad options is to make sure Ukraine wins the fight. Um, this is looking like it's going to be a rather long war, I'm afraid. Um, and, and to be fair, you made an excellent point that's not talked about enough. This is not a new war. This is a new front on a war that's been going on since 2014. The West has not covered that portion of it. You know, they've been fighting in the Donbass regions since the Crimean invasion. We call it an annexation. It was an invasion. Uh, just Ukraine pulled back their forces and let them have it because they were trying to protect their territory. You know, is, is that warmongering to say, hey, let the Ukrainians fight, but we need to give them a, you know, if somebody's getting beat up, can you hand a guy a stick and let him at least fight his own fight back? I, I don't think that's warmongering. I think that's decently smart policy because you can't let Russia take over the country, but we're not going to go in there with troops either. So what do you do? This is this is really hard stuff that needs to be hashed out. I'm, I'm open to listening to people's opinions on it. But yeah, it, you know, there's but no when you when you here. look at like Charlie Wilson's war and funding the Mujahideen, yeah. how that stuff works out, funding, you know, all oh, you know, running get bad folks run, no, running guns happened. through Libya. Yeah, I mean, it's already happening. You've got people in Ukraine. Uh, look at what happened in Syria. Like oh, the Avos well, Battalion. Bad, so let, yeah, yeah, you know, there, there's there's going to be bad. Like you said, the Ansar Battalions, you've got actual real Nazis in Ukraine. They're a very small minority. The, Ukraine is not. You, Ukraine has the largest Jewish population in Europe. They're not a Nazi run state. It's ridiculous. But yeah, there's there's bad people in Ukraine. Like there's bad people everywhere, and bad people get drawn to bad situations because they like doing bad stuff. And war is a lot of bad stuff with not a lot of accountability. So you're going to get a lot of bad faith people. By the way, Russia's scared to death of this. They don't really want foreign fighters. It's one of the things Putin's really scared of is foreign fighters hmm. coming in. They're going to get a mess of them now from this. Why? So that's something to watch coming down because uh, he fears the instability of it. Um, there's a real ethno nationalism to Putin underneath all the gloss. If you get down under it. Um, and you notice there's 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 a lot of reporting on this coming out now. Almost none of the Russian war dead are from Moscow. Hmm. It's it's kind of something we're going to have to dig in more before we really get into it. Is but it Chechens? We've we've been talking there. They've got it. Well, we know the Chechens are there because uh, Radovich and them's all there. Right. <laughs> like they're they're on their social media. You want to talk about some really bad people on the planet? Uh, the Chechen leaders. Uh, almost none of them's from Moscow. Hmm. Who are they sending down there? Why are they sending those folks? Well, because they don't want a body count in Moscow. They yeah. don't want crying moms in Moscow. There, there's some stuff that we're going to have to learn as we go here. Um, and Russia's, look, Russia's an enigma wrapped in a mamushka doll of craziness, paranoia, and stupidity. It, it's a hard country to figure out. It's always been that way, especially somebody that's in a bunker like Putin. Bunker, bunker mentality is what Putin's doing right now. Look at all those pictures where he's at the table and nobody's within 30 feet of him. Like, that's how this kind of stuff happens, why you launch a bad war that you're not going to win. There, There's a lot of mess here. Um, well, I, I got to end with this question. I'm yeah, sorry to cut you off. No, um, by but, all means, I talk too much. No, 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 you're good. Um, <laughs> but how do you avoid tiptoeing into a further escalation? Putin is just begging for the United States to escalate no. its involvement and... You know, I, I don't I don't totally buy that NATO caused this by their expansion. I'm sure it is a contributing factor, but he didn't attack a NATO nation. You know, he no. attacked a non-NATO nation. Uh, so I don't know that the argument holds a lot of water. I just think he's a guy who wants to try to take back as much imperial Russian territory as yes. he can and is looking yes. for a justification. Aren't you arguing for giving him a justification by sending them more weapons? Yeah, kind of. Or what, why does it matter? Another, why why do you want? Why would you take the risk? Or what? He's going to invade a sovereign country, right? <laughs> but it, I, you're you're right on the NATO thing because he's like, okay, so his argument is we don't want Ukraine and NATO, so we're going to take over Ukraine so we can border three other NATO countries, right? That, that doesn't make any, you know, 
Ukraine's skirt was too short is a really bad argument that you're going to go in a really bad place in a big hurry. No, Ukraine does not deserve to be invaded under any circumstances. Let's just put that out there. Now, have we mishandled the NATO stuff and the diplomacy? And sure, absolutely. There's plenty of stuff in there to hash out. Um, but as far as escalation, you've already got the largest shooting war in Europe since World War II. So I think escalation is a little bit out the window. We we Here's something else we need to make sure we keep track of. And, and this is something we need to watch. You know, we've talked about Russia's military being a paper bearer for a long time. We're really seeing the limitations of it. Uh, I know their logistics suck because I've actually worked with them. I've been on their aircraft. They can't do logistics, save their life. Logistically, they're getting they're getting destroyed because they can't maintain their armies in the field. They're not good at the urban warfare unless it's something like Syria where you can just level entire cities unmolested. We're learning a lot about their military might. Uh, something we really need to pay attention going down the road. I'm not so much worried about Russia escalating. I'm worried about Russia destabilizing because there's no version of this where Russia doesn't come out of it weaker and destabilized. So now does all the there's a lot of grievances in the world against Russia going back decades, centuries in some cases. Do some of these regions that Putin has brutalized, do they decide to take another shot at the bear now? Because right. they see it as weakened. Does does Georgia flare back up? Does Chechnya flare back up? Does some of the Kazakhstan was almost going to be a satellite state by the end of the summer, and now they're even talking about breaking back away from Russia. I escalation is a valid point. Yeah, we we don't want nuclear war. Can we, we better be worried about destabilization because you've already talked about it. you mentioned it. Things like Afghanistan, things like Iraq, destabilization is just as bad as escalation. I would, I'm almost more worried about that at this point because that's going to be even harder to control. Hmm. We don't have a real good method for that. We've got NATO for an escalation. We don't have a good plan for whatever. Remember, whatever comes after Putin, the oligarchs still run that country. It's going to be worse because the guy that gets put in behind Putin, he's going to pitch himself to the oligarchs. Well, the problem with Vlad was he wasn't committed to it. Hmm. That's how he's going to get that job. So whoever's next is going to be worse. I'm worried about the destabilization of Russia more than the escalation. I may be wrong. I hope I am. That's what I'm concerned about. Well, at least we're helping with de with uh, destabilizing them with all of our sanctions that haven't worked. But hey, what do I know? If you're not going to get, if you're not going after the gas, you're wasting time. And China and India, India's in a tough spot. I don't even want to bash India because their whole military is based off. But you know, China's going to prop them up. It's going to hurt them, but it's not going to be crippling. Unless China cut, unless China plays ball and you cut off Gazprom, you're you're nibbling the edges. You're not really getting to the heart of it. Just the way it is. Andrew Don Andrew Donaldson, excuse me, Young Voices no contributor, worries. host of Heard Tell. Thank you so much for joining me. I really appreciate it. Anytime, sir. Let's do it again soon.